Welcome back to Libya Matters. I'm both nervous and excited about this episode, probably because it's the one that touches me and Lawyers for Justice in Libya most personally, because it looks at civil society and those in civil society who are trying to do human rights work in Libya. Our guest today is Poonam Joshi, uh, who I'm thrilled to have. She has immense experience in looking at the way civil society works and how it can work better and the threats that civil society faces. And she is the director of the Funders Initiative for Civil Society, which is a group of funders trying to figure out a way to support civil society under attack. In this episode, we're going to be looking at what we actually mean when we talk about civil society and shrinking space for civil society, how the space that we work in has shrunk and why, and the ways that we can begin to contest that or to counter that, to be more resilient as human rights activists in the face of a very determined opponent. So please do listen up and let us know what you think. Welcome to Libya Matters. I'm on my own this week, but not for much longer because I have a great guest. This topic um, is one that's obviously very close to my heart and one that makes me both excited to talk about, but also a little bit nervous about learning too much um, and uh, learning really the environment we live in. So it's about civil society and the closing space around it. If we think back a little bit to 2011, when, if we still call it, the Arab Spring happened, we saw a real blossoming of civil society in Libya, and and no pun intended with the blossoming. In fact, in Benghazi alone, we saw over 600 registrations of NGOs. And this was a real phenomenon in the Libyan context, because prior to that, we lived through 42 years of a severe crackdown on civil society uh, by the Gaddafi regime, to the point that civil society, in the sense that we're talking about in this episode, didn't exist However, this kind of flourishing didn't really last for long. From 2014, we saw kind of a reversal of that uh, with a real crackdown and, 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 and quite extreme targeting um, of activists and killing of activists. And today we live in a situation where we've almost, if not entirely, re- regressed back to what it was like before 2011. And this is equally um, the case on in the west of the country and in, in the east of the country, um, although they've... I guess to a degree, employ different techniques. So in the East, we're seeing much more of a military state type of crackdown. Um, we've seen restrictions on movement with decision six and seven of 2017, which put restrictions on people between the ages of 18 and 45 from leaving the country without informing the military authorities in the East. We saw restrictions in late 2016 on freedom of assembly of people, and we've seen Um, recently the crackdown on on even women gathering in cafes to speak. And in the West, we've also seen um, a crackdown, perhaps in a more, um, I guess, in in sort of less military, but very much in the the same genre of of passing decrees to really curtail the, the freedoms of civil society. So we saw, in fact, just April this year, so in the midst of everything that was going on with the renewed fighting, the government of national accord in Tripoli still found the time to pass a decree um, to really hinder the ability of, of um, civil society organizations to work through restrictions on the ability to work without a registration, making registration utterly whimsical um, and at the discretion of the authorities. Um, and then we've also seen a very systematic and um, state-mandated intimidation of activists at the at the local level, but also as, as, as high up, if you like, in the international spheres as at the Security Council directly. And in both these um, areas, we've seen increased kidnappings by armed groups affiliated with the various bodies in power. 
And what we've also seen in both, which is from a legal perspective worrying, um, is an, in, an increase of resorting to Gaddafi-era laws when even the laws they've passed since then haven't been restrictive enough. I remember very clearly in 2011, 2012, uh, we, Lawyers for Justice in Libya and others, were asking for certain laws to be removed from Libya's statute book because we were terrified of how they might be utilized in this kind of uh, uprising phase. And we were reassured by one transitional government after the other that, of course, this is a different era and we would never resort to those Gaddafi-era laws. But our fear was always that if they're on the books, then they're on the books. And we actually saw that recently where in both, again, camps, Gaddafi-era laws were used to... um, go after civil society. Uh, We saw a law from 1972 on publications used to curtail freedom of expression, and we've also seen um, a a, a sort of a use of uh, laws on registration, etc., brought into play. And one quote that uh, one of our really great um, allies on the ground has said is, any laws that cover our work do not protect us but endanger us. And I think for me, that really pins down what we're seeing. And so I'm, I'm hoping in this, in this episode we'll be able to really look at the dangers that civil society face, reflect a little bit at how that might have come about or how um, we, we've become so vulnerable as a civil society, but hopefully end by looking forward and to see how we, even in this environment we can do some work and do some good. And I can't think of a better guest to discuss this with. Um, Poonam Joshi was... One of the first people I met when I started my activism journey back in 2011, I met her in 2012 um, in London and then in Tripoli um, and in Sobrata, where um, she came to sort of reflect on what civil society needed um, in terms of support from philanthropy. And today she is the director of the Funders Initiative for Civil Society, which is a really unique initiative bringing together some of the key donors. um, And the aim is to drive more philanthropic resources towards the support of civil society under attack. So, yeah, thank you so much, Poonam, and and welcome to Libya Matters. Thank you, Alham. Thanks for inviting me. So let's start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, let's start with this excitement and this sort of flourish of 2011 and, you know, the mass uh, movement of people to the streets, so civil society with us, if you like, small letter CS, uh, really people doing grassroots initiatives and working and s- slowly but surely trying to structure as a more sort of structured civil society. You were there and you reflected on that period quite a lot. It would be great to sort of get your reflections on it again. I think it's fascinating for me to visit Libya and at a moment where prior to that I had the opportunity to spend a bit of time in Egypt and Tunisia as well and, and to have a bit of a kind of comparative analysis of what I was seeing. So I guess both In contrast, in Egypt and Tunisia, you had relatively recent but long histories of organizing within civil society that played a role in in the revolutions that happened. So somewhere like Egypt, you had both kind of histories of um, labor rights, movement building at the grassroots, but also a, a kind of emergence of young activists demanding political reform. In Tunisia, the network of unions was critical 
to, to the realization of, of the revolution and the transition. I think what was so interesting about Libya was, you know, as you described, that complete crackdown that had happened on civil society in the period where those kind of leftist student movements were, were sort of creating the foundations of human rights movements in other countries. So you almost had a sort of vacuum. And, and my observations at the time were the kind of creations of the building blocks of Libyan civil society in a way looked very different to what we'd seen in other countries. So you had both a mix of kind of first-time activists from within the country, but the return of diaspora, like yourself, bringing sort of incredible expertise and skill and sort of trying to create a civil society movement almost out of nothing. And I, I remember meeting... Um, I think the first group that was registered in Tripoli that had previously been um, a group of Boy Scouts, which was one of the very few forms of civil society allowed to sort of exist in the Gaddafi era, and they discussed their kind of experiments with, you know, just being a sort of group of kind of political techie geeks and trying to figure out what role they were supposed to play in their kind of evolution from being involved in the conflict to, to trying to sort of engage in peace building and, and reform. And I guess one of the things I sort of really noticed at the time was an incredible energy and a forward-looking energy where people were sort of really confident they were going to sort of build a new society. So a lot of the focus was around the issues of constitutional reform and, and building democracy. I think what was absent, and Lawyers for Justice was one of the very few groups looking at this, were these kind of deep rooted tensions within society, as you say, kind of between East and West, but also in terms of migrants, um, minorities, uh, long-standing grievances around economic and social rights, uh, around race. Um, and, and, and I think maybe at the time, maybe not a naivety, but a feeling that even though those sort of religious conservative forces were at play and I could see them almost being more evident than when I stepped into contexts like Tunisia and Egypt. I could see there were fewer women in some cases in public spaces and political spaces that that space was being created. There was almost a sort of belief that that space would be sustained and I remember at the time things were going very badly wrong in Egypt and a lot of the Libyans I was talking to saying that's not going to happen here and it, I, I wish it had been true but it obviously turned out not to be. So I think what I saw was a, a nascent civil society, huge amount of energy and kind of commitment to the future, but also a fragility. And I guess that sort of fragility sort of paved the way for how resilient Libyan civil society has been in the face of the attacks that came next. That's a really interesting point, and I, I've never sort of really looked at it from that perspective because sometimes... I looked at it from the opposite perspective, whereas, well, actually, the civil society in Egypt and Tunisia is so, it's almost too professional. It lost its heart. It was too kind of pragmatic. And, and in a way, we saw, we also saw that go wrong in Egypt with sort of the over-pragmatism of some civil society actors and not being able to detach from the political. What could have been done to build resilience? Or could you build resilience? Or is it just a matter of time? I mean, part of it is that sort of cycle of coming under attack experimenting, knowing how you adapt, but then also having a prolonged period in which to do that. Um, so it's interesting, I was speaking to the head of the Mediterranean Women's Fund last week, and she was comparing the movements in Algeria and Morocco, and saying, you know, unfortunately, the, the, in Algeria, the sort of 
the moments of opening have been so short that the movement hasn't really had time to build the resilience that it needed in a way that the Moroccan, say, women's rights movement has. Having said that, I think it's, there are things that you can do to sort of build resilience in place. Um, building coalitions, unity is absolutely kind of critical. And I've seen that working in even the most sort of hostile environments for civil society, having shared values around which you coalesce. So when, you're, when, when, when the state and non-state actors are trying to divide you, and pit you against each other, that there's a kind of unified core. I think international solidarity is absolutely key. Visibility, raising awareness, and I think that's one of the, the saddest and most frustrating things I've, I've noticed about what's happening in Libya, is that it just disappeared off the pages of the international media, and even when it reappeared, it was with sort of almost limited analysis of what that meant for civil society. It sort of presented as a kind of geopolitical issue, or, or here's the transit country for migrants. It was, it was Libya through the lens of Europe and US interests, but never kind of Libya on its own terms. That awareness and visibility is kind of critical, we've seen in other contexts, in sustaining civil society. And those are all things that it is possible to kind of foster and grow. Can we take a moment and actually define what we mean by civil society and what we mean by kind of the space for civil society? Because I think those are terms and words that we use a lot and I'm not sure everyone uses them the same way. And I'm also not sure, you know, if... I mean, we've never even discussed if we use them the same way. So I think it's worth doing that because then at least we and we are and our listeners are on the same page, at least of what we're talking about. So what do you mean by civil society? I think I mean progressive civil society to start off with. So civil society in its broadest sense, it could be individual citizens, it can be collectives, it can be associations that fall outside of the state and business. So it can be anything from a civil liberties group to a football association, if you're talking about the legal framework. Um, I think when the human rights community is talking about civil society, it sometimes talks about it in quite a narrow sense. And it, it talks about the NGOs um, that have human rights goals. I think as we've seen civil society coming under attack in recent years, our definition of who we're talking about has expanded. So I think it now means all of the actors, be they individuals or, or unregistered groups or registered groups, that are working towards human rights or social justice or development or peace building. Um, so going sort of beyond the human rights sector to also looking at the development, the humanitarian, the environmental sector, but also ranging from kind of citizen bloggers to, to you know, INGOs. Um, I think there's an interesting question about, you know, does civic, civil society mean any citizen engaged in working on those goals. Um, and, and I think as we're starting to talk about civic space, I think we, we, we are starting to sort of interpret it in the widest possible way. And I think when you see the rise, for example, of citizen protest movements across the world, I think now those of us who talk about civil society and civic space talk about it in broad terms. I think the other thing I would sort of say is part of that clarification of the civil society we're talking about meaning progressive civil societies, that there is a thriving conservative civil society. And I think from the perspective of those who are committed to plural civil society and civic freedoms, 
we're certainly recognising that those groups also deserve legal protection in terms of association, expression, assembly. Um, but I think when we're talking about where to devote our resources as to the civic civil society actors we're most concerned about, not being able to have a say, not being able to express a voice, I guess I'm normally thinking about progressive civil society actors. And I, I think that definition is, is a really good segue into one of the first and most obvious ways that civil societies close down, and that's the kind of traditional route, right? So it's passing legislation that restricts it or passing or government sort of intimidation. And the first thing you'll see in any legislation is actually trying to limit that definition um, to the smallest possible amount of people that then get the protection if there is any protection. So requiring civil society to uh, um, be registered in a very specific way to, you know, to some degree be aligned with the revolution or whatever wording you want to use in, in different kinds of legislation. And so effectively doing the opposite of how you're defining it. It's not widening the protection. It's very much saying, you know what, this is what we think of as legitimate. All the rest is illegitimate and actually does not get protection. And if anything, we will put all our resources into preventing them getting protection. What you've described there, what we've seen going hand in hand over recent years is both kind of administrative harassment um, rooted in, in the creation or, 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 or amending of laws to make it so much harder for groups to either register in the first place or operate without state interference or to receive funding. But that goes hand in hand with delegitimization campaigns that sort of justify those restrictions. Um, and as you say, it can be in very specific ways, as in the context in Libya, sort of tied to the, the goals of the state. Um, it can, you know, a lot of the legislation can create definitions of what is constituted to be political. Um, and political becomes anything that is critiquing the state. Um, and then there are kind of broader debates that are really interesting around uh, attacking civil society for being corrupt or not transparent um, or misusing funding from abroad, um, which are then also used to kind of legitimise these restrictive laws. The decree, I think, is 286 that was passed this year by the government of National Accord, which, if we take a moment, that's the internationally recognised government um, the you know the interlocutor for the for the international actors and the one that should be at least pretending to play by the rules. They so they don't define civil society for starters. Um, they leave the registration entirely at the discretion of the authorities. So you apply to register. There are no criteria for registration other than their utter discretion. And then the second element, which picks up on on what you're talking about, the political element, is actually it says you know you can't have any direct or indirect political activity, but then who determines that is again these authorities which incidentally aren't defined either the minute you're within the regime you're utterly at the whim of these authorities and they have full access to your records they can come into your buildings and search them and it, you, you have no privacy in terms of the materials you've got and so it really creates quite a well, not just a hostile an extremely hostile environment and one where it's very difficult. So we, we work with a lot of NGOs on the ground and they always ask us about registration and it's very difficult because obviously we're trying to promote the rule of law and so we can't say to people well, don't register because that's us saying we want to promote the rule of law but also encouraging people to break the law. But at the same time we say you, know, you have to be really careful because registering 
all that does is expose you. It doesn't protect you. And that's exactly what that quote I started with, right? It, these laws are there to endanger us, not to protect us. Yes. And what do you do at that stage? Do you say, you know what, no, as civil society, we're going to come together and say we're not registering? But then everyone can, it's non-registration under the Gaddafi era laws is criminal. And so you're telling people to be willing to go to jail for that. Or you try to work with the commission, which is what we've tried to work in the past in helping them redraft the laws. But every draft we see is worse. And Egypt seems to be the kind of go-to as a model. And you know, we try to do Egypt plus in Libya. And yeah, and then for me, that's a bit that I really struggle with is conceptually, what, what, what should we be doing? Should we be trying to seek to change the laws or should we be, I don't know, like conscientious objectors to the laws and um, having some form of civil disobedience that then end up being really problematic? And, and I think the other complicating factor in that is how it's viewed by donors yeah. outside. And I mean, we've seen that dilemma that you're, you're grappling with kind of played out in many different countries. Um, in quite a number, NGOs decided to, to register and comply so they could secure that place to continue their work. But in particular contexts where the laws were so restrictive and it was sort of very clear to the outside world that this, these were tools of repression, that the, the conditions were not at all proportionate or legitimate. Um, there's been a kind of wider recognition from the international community and donors of why groups don't register. But I'd say that level of awareness is only in relation to a handful of countries, so concepts like Russia, contests like Egypt. And of course, in Russia, what the authorities did after groups refused to register was to formally, for, forcibly register the, them um, under the foreign agents law from 2012. And the interesting trajectory there was for a period of time, it meant groups lost funding. But over time, it almost became a badge of honor to be on the foreign agents list. And I remember a conversation about a group that wasn't registered and us going, oh, do you think, do you think that has tied to the authorities? Um, um, you know, do you think it's sufficiently human rights and radical for, you know, to, to sort of merit funding? Um, Egypt, it's also been an incredibly, you know, difficult... Um, dilemma for a lot of the groups some have decided to register some have decided to set up entities outside some have decided to sort of try and comply and I think I think what's interesting about Libya is you know the, the news of the NGO law in Libya its operation is kind of rarely discussed in those debates around closing space um, so the, the 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 challenge you face is both internally do you sort of pursue a strategy of trying to create an enabling environment? And if you completely disengage, you lose that opportunity. As you say, do you take the risk of potentially groups being exposed? But it's, it's a sort of catch-22. What do they do? And of course, it'd be something almost that's kind of easier to do if there's international attention and solidarity that will stand by the people who decide to take a stand. Um, but it's not an easy problem no, and to it, answer. And I mean, we saw that play out now in, in sort of in April. So in April this year, as, as I'm sure all our listeners know, uh, the, the conflict in Libya became escalated again, became violent again. And it was during this period that the GNO, GNA, the, the government of national accord, passed this law, the decree, not law. And we were talking to states who were standing with the GNA in this conflict. And we said to them, look, Okay, fine, you want to support them. They're your guys. They're the internationally recognized government. That's absolutely fine. But actually, 
this is a really easy condition you can put on them for your support. You know, you are backing them morally, you're taking their case to the UN, you're trying to get resolutions passed on their behalf to recognize what's going on, you are backing them financially, you're, you know, then at the very least that there should be conditionality that repeal this decree or actively support, that is not a big ask, it won't hinder your interests, international actors in this scene, because actually they should be aligned with your interests, US, UK, France, etc. But it just seemed a bit like a cute request almost from some of these actors like oh this is really sweet civil society laws etc are cute and and it's kind of this this sort of dismissal of we're talking about trying to get a peace settlement here why are you telling us to put conditionality on civil society that seems like such a nice to have kind of thing and what we keep pointing out is like okay civil society is what we say it is like in our mind you know the human rights but actually even in this conflict the, the a lot of the issues you care about as international actors what's going on with migrants what's happening the only people who are filling that void, humanitarian, etc., are this our civil society, and you're not protecting them, and you're not prioritizing them, and it, that bit feels very uncomfortable and very concerning for me. That even the lip service to saying this decree is unacceptable, and for you to pass it right now in this environment, is alarming to us international community because that says that you, the legitimate government, are also choosing to deal with this conflict by cracking down on the people exposing it instead of genuinely trying to fix it. And that, and that for me is really scary. And it's, it's another quote that one of our people on the ground said is, is you know, basically what's now, what, when you do monitoring work, it's considered spying. And even trying to report things to the UN is considered spying or, you know, working on Libya's UPR, et cetera, which is what all this is about. This is all trying to crack down on getting the story out. I guess I have a question for you. And it's interesting to see it through the lens of Libya. So what, what we see is a big battle with policy coherence amongst the international community. So there are ministries and departments and actors within those Western governments that are concerned about civic space and the future of civil society, and through their embassies are extremely conscious of what's happening on the ground. But when any other interests come into play, security, migration, terrorism, that concern sort of disappears or is deprioritized. But it's part of, you know, the, the sort of pillars of the European Union. It is part of the kind of foreign policies of many of these governments. I, I'm sort of curious as to, for example, at the kind of embassy level, what have you found the representatives of the community saying? Are they kind of echoing what people are saying higher up? Or is there a kind of different kind of space to have that conversation? I think it really depends on the embassy. There are certain countries that are far more genuine in their support of this than others. But you mentioned the sort of EU pillars, and I remember sitting in a meeting with the EU team in Tunisia, the rule of law section of the EU team in Tunisia, and talking to them about the need to really focus on building up the judiciary in this period, and because you know that is one element of the Libyan system that's not getting enough attention, and it can be the balance that's needed, etc. And the direct quote I got was, we're in a conflict, justice can wait. You know, we didn't have a friendly relationship, so that wasn't like an off-the-cuff kind of flippant remark. It was the first time I'd met with these people. I was there to talk to them about, you know, empowering the judiciary. And and their instinct was, there is a sequencing of things that need to happen, and justice is not a priority, and justice is something you have as a nice-to-have. And I think that is the kind of rhetoric that we're really concerned about. And it also, okay, so we get that message as civil society, it's disheartening, we have to move on. But what's more dangerous is that message being received by the stakeholders on the ground and the actors on the ground and the governments, whichever one they're supporting, hearing the message that justice can wait, that 
civil society is not a priority, then empowers them to pass laws and decrees like this because they know that there is no repercussion to that. It won't cut off the support. It won't cut off the, you know, the political process. And it's this lack of kind of consequence to this is what's what's really been highlighted. We can always pick, us, pick ourselves up as civil society because we're used to it. But I think the flip side is this message reaches us, but it also reaches those who are seeking to oppress us. And I think that is what's really scary. In 2009, Ethiopia passed possibly the most regressive NGO law in the region. Um, as a result, it was almost impossible for groups to not only receive foreign funding, but to raise funds domestically. And I think one anecdotal statistic given at the time was there were three or four independent human rights organizations left within Ethiopia. Um, those funders who continued to support civil society had to do it through the lens of development or not even rights-based development, just development. And you fast forward, you have a change of government in Ethiopia, uh, triggered by mass protests that clearly were not being funded from outside because no funding had been there for years. Um, and the, pass the passage of a new NGO law that isn't perfect, but is an improvement on, on what was there before. And I, I remember going to an event where the Deputy Attorney General um, from Ethiopia was speaking, and he gave the speech in praise of the role of civil society. It was the kind of statement you would never have expected to hear from the Ethiopian government. But what was interesting was that, you know, within Ethiopia, there were political figures. Within government, there were officials that had wanted to create a more enabling environment for civil society. But the Western governments that were engaging with their regime, with their government, you know, it didn't appear to sort of think that the regime wasn't homogenous that there were reformist elements that they could have engaged with, um, that to a point maybe it might have been a deal breaker for some people within government, but not everyone. But they weren't even willing to entertain the idea of raising protection of civil society as an issue. Uh, and they had the leverage to do so. I mean, they continued to give huge levels of assistance to Ethiopia. Um, so that reopening happened because of trends and shifts and actors within Ethiopia, but it didn't happen as a result of the West. It's the resilience you're talking about. Yeah. So international community, when we're talking traditionally about that, we tend to mean sort of Western countries. And in the context of Libya and in the context of civil society, we kind of know how to have the conversation with those countries, right? We know how to talk to the UK or the US or France about their duties to promote civil society or to protect civil society and they really should be thinking about them more seriously and they have to listen because of their own, I guess, I don't know, their perceptions of what their values are about. But there are other actors in Libya and other actors that are in the region are playing a bigger role who don't even want to give you the time to listen to these concerns and are very happy to disregard them publicly verbally, loudly, and obviously here I'm talking about the Gulf states primarily, but add to it Turkey, Egypt, Russia, who also have a role in Libya, and from whom Libya can learn a lot about repressing civil society. Um, and I think that is something that it would be really helpful for us to understand because that is sort of the to come period of this, right? That there is the traditional repression we've seen is one thing, but also this kind of use of modern technology to repress civil society and other tools that these countries specifically have been using not that the others haven't, but more so and more with more ownership, is something that I think is really worthy of alarm because we don't even have the platform to discuss this with them. So when you're talking about the role of these 
new actors and uh, the models they offer of how you manage dissent and, and civil society. Um, and it, it's interesting to see how, how that's evolved. So when the proliferation of NGO laws first started, one of the defining characteristics of the phenomena was copycatting. So what we saw was countries sometimes cutting and pasting laws from other countries. Sometimes they were copying governments that exerted a great deal of uh, influence in a particular region. So if you look at Russia and then, and then the extension of the kind of foreign agents laws being proposed in, in Central Asia and post-Soviet space. Sometimes um, the copycatting happened between unusual actors. So I, I remember the Pakistani government praising the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act in India, and I thought, well, that's probably quite a, a, a rare moment where, where the Pakistanis are, are praising the Indians for their, for their legal frameworks. Um, and I think for a, lot, for a long time, we, we sort of saw that copying as something that occasionally was being orchestrated, for example, in the case of, of a state like Russia. But normally, I think we saw it as governments realizing here was a really clever way of subtly closing down uh, opposition and accountability, um, but in ways that didn't invite international condemnation, not like arrests or detentions or killings. I think what we're now beginning to realize is, is when we look to the future, and we see a future where over the next 10 to 15 years... There's this really odd rustling in the background, which sounds like we might be on the beach, but actually it's just a really poor plumbing <laughs> in our NGO office. So I'm really, um, I'm really sorry about that. We can't do much about it, but if it helps you to imagine us on the beach, please do. But really it's just us in a a rather suboptimal office. <laughs> so I'm really sorry, Poonam. I didn't mean Not to cut you all. off, but it is so distracting. Not at all. It's a kind of really prosaic moment, given what I'm now about to scare you with. <laughs> so, so one of the things we've been looking at, the Funders Initiative for Civil Society, is the future of civic space. And what are those big trends that are going to shape not just the future for civil society, but our collective futures some of those we're already aware of. We, we can see the decline of democracy. We can see rising economic inequality and that sort of gulf between the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few compared to what the majority, majority lives on or subsists on. Um, we see contestation around identity taking place. But two of the key trends that if we don't influence them will become irreversible are around climate and around AI, artificial intelligence. So in terms of climate, you know, science has given us a deadline. Um, we have a decade, 12 years at most, for governments to work in hand in hand with business and civil society to prevent global warming exceeding 1.5 degrees, at which point it becomes impossible for huge swathes of, of the world to, to, to live, to survive, to prosper, particularly across the global south and the Middle East, North Africa is going to be one of those hotspots, literally. Um, and we know that governments have known about this for a long time. We know within governments, the, the, the parts of government that have known about this and planned for this are the, the defense ministries. 
and, and the decisions that they've made is we, we're going to deal with this, not through an honest conversation with society, not through bringing civil society on board. We're going to plan for the future by building borders and walls and, and controlling dissent. Um, in tandem, what you have is the rise of artificial intelligence. And we already see evidence of that in how uh, machine learning and algorithms dictate on social media what content we see and what we don't see. We see it in the development of surveillance technologies, which the Gulf have been at the kind of epicenter of using to sort of track and monitor their opponents and activists and journalists. Um, we see the production of new technologies that will kind of interfere with our ability to trust what we see. So you, you look at the um, sort of scale of, of trolling um, and distorting social media feeds, particularly around elections, but also in sort of conflict settings that distort public's perception of what do people really care about, but also um, targeting of any civil society actors uh, until they self-censor and withdraw. Um, you see in the pipeline the production of um, new technologies like deep fakes. So the creation of these fake videos where it would be almost impossible to tell what's true and what isn't. But you also see, and this is where China is a really interesting actor, the creation of technologies that would allow governments to engage in um, tracking social media to sort of detect the troublemakers but also um, the creation of surveillance technology that allows you in public spaces to identify protesters and, and the opposition. And what we know last year through um, research from Freedom on the Net is that China uh, exported and, and trained officials from 36 countries on how to start using this technology. And when you talk about actors in Libya, the one you didn't mention was China which is, is heavily present. And so when you start looking at how these governments, the Gulf, China, Russia, are developing these models for how you control dissent, opposition, and civil society, and, and the realization that they're not just waiting for people to copy them. They're actively uh, exporting these technologies as a way of controlling their sphere of influence. So if, if you kind of think of the potential way that a future Libyan government could use the offer of technological support from China. At the same time, you see Russia, uh, I think it was recently exposed in a Guardian article, had these sort of strategies around how to manage its interests in a whole range of sub-Saharan African and Middle East North African countries. In the case of Russia, it might be through funding media, through creating new media. Um, and also offering strategies of how you, how you can sort of survey and control civil society. And then you see the same with the Gulf. So it's when you see the kind of marriage of those different models. And I guess what we see, on the one hand, that, that feels very frightening. On the other hand, I think what they're sort of counting on is that civil society doesn't know that this is in the pipeline. Um, so a question for us as civil society and funders is what more can we do to actually understand what's coming so it doesn't we're not just presenting a dystopian future that paralyzes people but also kind of recognizing 
that this is coming and how do we educate society about understanding and navigating those digital worlds so they're able to resist them? Um, how do we create the spaces to sort of produce content and information to inform and mobilize civil society in safe ways? How do we create those safe spaces digitally? How do we, how do we once we have the knowledge of knowing how these governments are, are planning to restrict civil society, expose them for doing so? There's an element of that to also acknowledge that actually a target of our advocacy or our lobbying should not just be the state actors, but the media, the kind of technology companies that support them in building it, but also host them. So one of, the, I mean, one of the examples that I read about recently is this application that you can have on your mobile phone to track your woman in Saudi Arabia. So basically, if you're the mahram, the chaperone, you get to know her movements because it's on through an app of some kind and that app is available to download from sort of the Apple store and um, and other providers and so for me that is that seems ludicrous that I could go you know on the same platform to download I don't know my Angry Birds or whatever the equivalent is now I'm showing my how out of date I am with those games or an app to track a human being and you know restrict their freedom of movement and it's the same mechanism and it's with the same ease and so I guess one avenue for us as civil society is also to really look at the businesses behind this that support these actors. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know they're as stubborn and as powerful as states now, but there is scope there for that. There is some scope. There is, there is scope through using naming and shaming. And, and I think what we've seen is in the absence of kind of universally agreed regulation, around the tech giants and social media, and that's, that's a whole different question about how you strike a balance. Um, what we have seen in particular country contexts, there's been sort of sufficient outrage that has forced Facebook, for example, to at least offer an explanation for what it is and isn't doing and step up its response. So if you look at Myanmar, and the levels of hate speech that were being generated on, on Facebook pages, uh, anti-Rohingya hate speech. Um, and, and Facebook was at least sort of forced to admit that it didn't have moderators able to understand local languages. It had to kind of step up um, and recruit translators and moderators. And the reality is in, in the vast majority of the world where naming and shaming doesn't happen, Facebook can get away with those practices. Um, but if there's a way of building a campaign that highlights the impact and, and the Facebook's failure to take steps to correctly kind of moderate um, uh, its platform, there is kind of scope to have some impact. And I was, I was thinking about a story that you told me the last time we met, which was where I think you were describing that a lot of these, um, a, a lot of the, the, the users were clearly not Libyan users that were sort of creating a debate around the conflict. But when a journalist had challenged some of the commentary that was coming out, he was blocked rather than the people an coming activist. up with an activist, rather than the people sort of generating these fake stories with, with underlying political agendas. 
is actually not only is it a danger that the story is being kind of controlled by sort of intelligent bots or whatever they're called that were actually based in Saudi Arabia. I think I can't remember the statistics now, but we gave it in the previous episode. But it's around the 40 percent mark was from there and around 7 percent was from Libya. So it's just the, the proportions are just ridiculous. But. The, yeah, it's that kind of, not only is it impacting on the conversation, but actually because journalists don't have access to Libya, they rely on the available information online to report the stories. And actually that narrative is being created by this very concerted effort to portray a specific story for Libya that suits these international actors. I'm conscious that we've, so we've, we spent the bulk of this time discussing the impact on civil society that is caused by by the sort of states, whether it's by whether it's the Libyan states or the various actors purporting to be the state in Libya and the international actors, the sort of the state actors there. But one other element that I find does not get enough airtime and is not discussed is actually the role that donors play, not in the philanthropic kind way that you mentioned of them trying to find solutions to this, but actually being part of the problem because of how they categorize a country or how they choose to prioritize. So in, this, in the context of Libya, and you're, this is nothing what I'm about to say is new to you, but we had, you know, from 2014 onwards, when the conflict became much more convoluted in Libya, a real turn, like a real sort of philanthropy turning its back on Libya. So I'm not talking about state donors because we've kind of covered those already, but I'm talking about philanthropic donors. Um, so, you know, the trust, the people you think of when you think of philanthropy, saying, oh, Libya is a failed state, therefore you won't have impact, so we're going to redirect our funds to somewhere else. Or actually, historically, Libya has been a donor country, and so there should be enough philanthropy within the country to fund itself, despite the fact that there's been no culture of that, no history, no evidence of that. And in fact, that would probably cause more trouble than solve things if you, if you rely on that. Or the argument that actually, you know, this is not a priority right now. What we need to be focusing on is counterterrorism um, projects funding or migration specific issues or humanitarian because that's where the real need is. And so we've seen all the criticism we've given of states of relegating human rights work, of relegating um, justice and, and sort of rule of law work in favor of the easier causes to support, like providing food and water and shelter, which is obviously worthy of support but also of, of really effectively writing Libya off as a cause. I mean, you know this story very well, but we had our funding cut entirely, and we went from being funded for two years to being funded for six weeks by our main donor in 2014 because that donor, one of the biggest players in the, in the, in the arena, decided that Libya was a failed state and how could we possibly have impact, mm -hmm. and effectively deciding that, as a result, civil society in Libya can die. Um, and that power is so unchecked um, and even more than states, I'm sorry I'm putting this to you, but it's so unchecked because at least in states there are mechanisms where they have to answer for their behavior. But donors don't. I mean, I think there are, there are broader debates that are actually being discussed right now about the legitimacy of philanthropy. I think generally those of us from within the human rights community that have benefited from progressive philanthropy don't often take the time to think about those sort of broader criticisms because we're, we're grateful for the funding received. But obviously, you know, in philanthropy, you have funds held by a kind of handful of actors um, that I think are in many cases extremely well-intentioned, but there are no accountability mechanisms. And so those decisions are being made either by program officers or, or boards or a mix. Um, and I know from working within those organizations, there is 
pressure to demonstrate some form of impact. Um, I, I've also had the good fortune to work for foundations that are willing to act in solidarity with activists in countries where that space is closed, but that's not always the trend. And I think that's where, you know, sort of funders have to ask themselves the balance they strike between wanting impact and solidarity. With, with activists and civil society, they've already developed relationships with and what it means when you pull that funding. I, I think, you know, maybe a few years ago, post-Cold War, there was an idea of a kind of long arc of progress and, and growing democratization and, and more and more countries um, establishing democracies and that those countries where space closed down were the kind of anomalies. Um, and maybe it was a kind of wiser use of resources to invest in the kind of opening spaces in the hope that they would continue to open. I think what we're seeing is that isn't how things are playing out any longer. It's more cyclical. Places open, places close, and then they reopen. And I think what's interesting is a number of the spaces we've seen reopening are not ones where donors were um, investing their time and effort. Maybe a handful might have been, but not the majority. So if you look at Armenia, if you look at a Macedonia, if you look at Ethiopia, you know, most the donors that stayed did so within the parameters of what they were allowed to do. And the vast majority didn't see those countries as kind of potentially opening spaces. Sudan, another one. And, you know, I think it's kind of incumbent upon donors to, I kind of appreciate it's not possible to fund everywhere within the kind of budget most, I mean, I appreciate there are some mega donors, but for most foundations, they don't have huge budgets. But I think where you've already made a commitment to civil society in a particular country, you have to think very carefully before you pull out and the signal that sends both to civil society and the state in terms of um, whether anyone's going to care about what happens. But also strategically, it makes sense. And, you know, uh, Libya, to be honest, is one of those countries geopolitically that's incredibly interesting. Um, it's much easier to kind of justify an interest in Libya than it might be in Macedonia, for example. And so there is a degree of short-sightedness. And I think the other point I'd make, and this has been coming up a lot as we've been talking to people about the future and, 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 and the trends and drivers of closing space, is that our opponents, this is far right or, or populists, actually don't seem to discriminate about where they find their opportunities. I mean, they will fund and they will um, advance their strategies in any geography possible. Um, so a sort of parallel example is the rise of anti-gender ideology campaigns funded by the far right, deployed in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Europe. Um, and what, you've, what we sort of found was that sort of progressive funders were so stuck in silos around theme and geography that when these actors entered new spaces, it was coming as a surprise. Um, so, you know, there is a question mark about how donors set their priorities um, and if they're doing so in the most effective way. And that effect, to be, they're on the back foot compared to the people that we're up against. Wow. Well, that's a pretty dismal 
picture we've painted. I'm going to take you back to where we started about to sort of to kind of try to wrap it all up is with this kind of idea that really ultimately what it comes down to civil society needs to really look at itself for its resilience and for its kind of if you like not just resilience but for its survival and so you know it's not it won't be the states and it certainly won't necessarily be the donors who will give you that lifeline that you need and the lifeline that constantly comes to mind is is the support we give each other and this kind of coalition building um and you know when i was sort of putting my little skeleton of 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 where i thought today's episode would go that's exactly the kind of point i wanted to get to because one of the other things we inherited from the Gaddafi era and, and from this conflict is is a lack of trust between actors. And, you know, although we all recognize to a certain degree the importance of solidarity and coalition building, there is still a lack of trust between different civil society actors to really push through that barrier and say, you know what, we are all dependent on each other for our kind of collective survival. And the only way we can counter this is if we stand together. You know, we talked about it earlier in the context of registration, or, but on a much more macro level, um, you know, doing things as coalitions, it's, it's easy to ignore one organization or two, but to ignore 50 is difficult. Um, one activist being targeted and having 50 organizations stand up for them is really important. And we've certainly been trying to do a lot of that work, but there is so much more to be done on building trust in order to build civil society coalitions, in order to make us a bit more resilient as a as a body and to end on a positive note how can we build this trust is there have you got any tips on other than spending time with each other and just getting to know each other which is actually something we're trying to build into budgets to just have time where we spend together not necessarily because it's a workshop or because it's training or because there's a discernible box sticking outcome but just to get to know each other and to trust each other is really important that goes back obviously to donors whether they think that's worthwhile etc but let's park that let's say there's no money to do anything what can we still do to kind of grow? That is a really difficult question because the first thing I thought of was resources. I mean, I think Lawyers for Justice has occupied a very kind of critical role in terms of Libyan civil society. Um, and I, I know this podcast isn't about your work, but I think you see a lot of international organisations that have quite an extractive model where it's about taking information to formulate into advocacy recommendations and policy. I guess one of the things I've seen you and your colleagues do is seek to constantly foster civil society within Libya. And I think, you know, the starting point we talked about was that vacuum where civil society didn't have deep roots within the country. I think what you're doing in trying to build a community and a kind of ecosystem is really, really critical. I don't think there's a magic bullet. I think what you're saying about building trust over time is critical. Um, I don't know if as part of that you've had a conversation about shared values, but I think that's, that's a sort of really critical exercise to be involved in. I think uh, another thing to do is, is to think about the future together so that you're going on that learning journey together. It's people simultaneously developing deep relationships. It's shared values. It's sort of preparing for the future. I think one of the things that we've observed and learned from the feminist movement in particular is a really strong focus on holistic security and welfare 
and well-being. And I think it's often been dismissed by a lot of the human rights community and funders as a sort of um, a luxury, an add-on. Um, but a lot of the feminist movement are reframing it as a kind of political strategy. You know, if you're dealing with burnout, you're dealing with trauma, how do you build the space into those meetings when people come together to rest, to take a break within, within what's feasible and what's possible? I mean, I remember talking to you sort of a few weeks ago um, as the conflict was unfolding and that kind of realisation that everyone is in firefighting mode, but they have been for years. You know, how do you sort of... How can you ensure that you've got the energy when that opening happens to still be together? So I think that's, that's absolutely critical. I think building those international relationships is also key. So having identifying those international actors that are not just advancing your kind of usual strategies, but help you think in different ways about, about the challenges that you have that might introduce you to kind of different allies that you haven't thought of. So sort of continuing, continually also using that convening space to be exposed to new things and to learn and to not feel that you've become sort of stagnant in the face of a kind of constant struggle. Because um, I guess one of the things we're seeing is there is constant creativity. There are openings. The same social media that sort of shuts down spaces also open spaces. The same shifts we're going to see around things like climate and migration will also mean that governments will actually really, really need civil society, whatever they say. So it's also holding on to some sort of hope and optimism for the future. And I guess where our end is, you know, as I've been looking at the future of civic space, a lot of the people I've spoken to aren't human rights activists. It's think tanks, it's journalists and scientists. And what was really interesting was that kind of resounding commonality amongst everything that they were saying was stressing the absolute critical importance of civil society in building futures that are livable and worth living in. It felt genuine and sincere. I have sometimes felt when you speak to government representatives and they talk about the value of civil society, you wonder if they genuinely mean it because the actions don't translate into... I mean, their sort of words don't translate into action. But I think a lot of the people who are shaping the future are really counting on civil society to not just be a partner, but to be kind of visionary in what's coming next. Um, and so everything you can do to just sort of sustain and keep the space open now is going to be so important to the future. That feels as optimistic as we're, as we're going to get on this topic. Thank you so much. Um, this has been, in parts depressing but also uplifting because I, I I think what just bringing it all back to really the people who started this in 2011 are the ones who are going to also see us through this really dark period is is good to hear and I feel we are as LFGL in safe hands in the partners we have in Libya and we you know we, we trust them and hope that we can together do something so thank you so much my pleasure Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. This will help us get discovered and to keep growing. If you'd like to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please let us know on our Facebook page, Libya Matters, or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. This episode was hosted by me, Ilham Saudi. It was produced by Tara Kilmiri. The people who put it all together are Linda Patumi, Elise Fletcher, Ines Maximiano, and me, Ilham Saudi. Our interns are Marian Sozi and Ahmed Madi. Libya Matters is made possible by our partnership with international media support, IMS. Thank you.